0: Lift
1: off. We have a lift down. Hello and welcome, it's Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750 WSB, the full number 404 87 wsb talk So I am coming to you from Washington, D.C., uh, where I've been wandering around Capitol Hill today, I've been—I've uh, got some interviews scheduled on Thursday, uh, meeting with the Vice President, uh, meeting with uh, various organizations up here. So busy, busy week. But I wanted to take the pulse of members of Congress today about the uh, emergency declaration. So the House has begun debate; they will be voting on the emergency declaration, and uh, we'll be discussing whether or not there is an emergency. And if there is an emergency, whether or not they should help the president, it's going to fail. Um, Essentially, what's going to happen, it's kind of weird how people talk about it up here. So the legislation is a disapproval. It's a resolution of disapproval of the declaration of emergency. And in voting for the resolution, you are voting against the president. Voting against the resolution means you're voting for the president. And one of the most interesting things that I have discovered up here is that even among Republicans on Capitol Hill who support the president, they're really not excited about this emergency declaration. This is an issue that to a degree divides Republicans on Capitol Hill. But privately, there's much more widespread agreement. And this is one of those things that frustrates people who are cynical about politics to see the division that's going on in Washington. What I mean is that behind the scenes, members of the Republican Party are very openly willing to say there is no emergency. This is going to hurt our efforts with the future Democratic president. And we're ceding the high ground after years of talking about Barack Obama's abuses of power. Suddenly, we're doing what we blamed him for. As a result of this, they don't want to vote against the resolution. They they want to vote to disapprove the emergency declaration, but they also want to highlight that they do view the situation at the border as a crisis. Now, several of them pointed out that a crisis and emergency are two different things. There is a crisis at the border. There's not an emergency at the border. And a couple of them also pointed out, particularly among the Senate class, that Having the president declare an emergency shortly after losing a fight with Congress over funding suggests that the president is doing this because he lost a fight with Congress, not because there really is an emergency, more so because the president and the Republicans controlled Congress for two years and they never viewed it as an emergency then. Again, the the big issue here for Republicans on the Hill Um, particularly those who are Trump supporters. Now, what's so interesting to me, and this is a dynamic worth pondering, is that moderate Republican leaders on Capitol Hill are more likely to double down privately and publicly in support of the president, where it's the conservatives and the real squishy liberal Republicans who are united on this front, that there are serious constitutional issues with what the president wants to do. Now, I want to go and play for you. Kevin Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, he had a press conference earlier on this staking out his position. Let's play clip one. The president has the authority to do it. I wish some of those, if they think this is the case, maybe they should spend a little time with Adam and go to the border and understand it. The president does have the authority since 1976. There's been more than 60 times presidents have declared emergencies. Um, What we see happening along the border The amount of drugs, the amount of deaths in America, the human trafficking uh, that's coming across, the overwhelming problem there. So the president has the authority to do it, and we will uphold them. Now, Kevin McCarthy is not a substantive policy guy. If he was, he may not have used that argument. It, it's hard to say that there actually is an emergency in terms of the data he cited, uh, border crossings, drugs coming over the border, etc. When all of those numbers are actually going down. Now you would never know that from a lot of the policy conversations out there. But the numbers have actually trended in the right direction. So to declare an emergency now, when the president and Congress have control, the president Republicans have controlled Congress for two years, and the data, the numbers were actually worse two years ago than they are today makes this a heavy lift, which is why you have Republican congressmen and senators behind the scenes seething that the president has put them in this position. And a lot of them understand that they're in this position and they have to support the president because they'll be eaten alive back home. They're, they're, they're doing this because they're scared of the base. You know, it's actually an interesting corollary to what we see happening in Georgia with David Ralston and the, 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 the fear of voters versus the fear of David Ralston. So. You know, you, you've got this interesting dynamic. So the the, the Georgia House of Representatives, uh, most of the members of the House are standing behind David Ralston because they're more scared of David Ralston than they are of their own constituents. Uh, Mary Robichaux, who is, uh, she beat uh, Tom Price's wife, Betty Price, in Roswell. She's a new freshman Democrat in the House of Representatives. She actually told a constituent. Uh, who forwarded the email to me, that she was going to back Speaker Ralston's bipartisan commission on what to do. In other words, she is outsourcing her sense of right and wrong to a bipartisan commission, which I assure you is not why she was elected. It, it's a staggering statement from members of the Georgia House that they're going to allow a bipartisan commission to to tell them something is right or wrong. I mean, w- what part of right or wrong do you need to know that a, a 14-year-old says she was raped and five years later the Speaker of the House is still dragging the case out? What part of right and wrong do you not understand that you need a bipartisan commission to tell you about Mary Robichaud? And she's not along. There, uh, there are other Republicans in the House Representatives in Georgia who privately are seething. Over the Speaker not getting out of the way, not stepping aside, not recognizing the damage he's doing to the caucus, but they're too scared of their positions in the House or whether or not they can get legislation to pass that they're standing behind the Speaker, that they, they're they not scared enough of you guys. You you got to keep calling repeatedly your, your State House member and get them on the phone over this. Don't take the word of the Secretary. Demand that they call you back. They are your employee you are their boss. So contrast the House of Representatives in Georgia with the Republican in in Washington. In the Georgia House, they're not listening to the constituents because they're more scared of the Speaker than of the voters. In Washington, most of these guys disagree with the President's emergency declaration, but they're so scared of the voters at home that they're going along with the President. Most of you listening right now probably support the president's emergency declaration. I do not support the president's emergency declaration, even though I support building the wall, even though I support uh, cracking out of the border, even though I support expanding the border patrol agents, because there's not really an emergency, I don't think, under the emergency statute. Most of you, though, disagree. I recognize that. And most of you support the president. And most Republican members in the House of Representatives are scared enough of angering you that they're going to do what you want even though they don't think it's right. Now, that's a direct opposite of what's happening in the Georgia House. Most of the House members in Georgia actually agree with you. Most of the House members in Georgia actually believe the right thing to do is to pressure the Speaker to go away. But they're so scared of the Speaker and what he can do to them, they're not doing what they think is the right thing. It's it's really a fascinating dynamic there. It's just another reminder that the people in, in the Georgia State House of Representatives, they're not intimidated by you, they're not threatened. Maybe we need to do a rally at the state capitol. Maybe if a bunch of people actually show up visibly, because you've been calling, you've been emailing, maybe the next step is to actually show up. I don't know how many of you would even be interested in showing up and doing a rally at the state capitol uh, in support of removing Speaker Ralston, but your state representatives are not scared of you. You actually should show up in person when the capitol is in session and demand a meeting. I'm on Capitol Hill today, and they are flooded. I have never seen lines to get into the Cannon and the Longworth and the Russell House office buildings. There are lines that stretch down the street. And they are constituents, some of them very upset of the emergency declaration, some of them very upset Republicans don't want to vote for the emergency declaration, and they're actually showing up to be heard. How many of you are actually going to the state capitol and confronting your state representative over David Ralston? Probably not a lot. You're you're using the phone and that's good, and you're emailing that's good, but they're clearly it's not working. They're more scared of him than you because you're not showing up and getting in his face like they are up here on, on Capitol Hill. I actually had to I I'm I've been up here so much. I know ways into some of the buildings where I can get around so that there aren't lines and the huge lines of people up here on this emergency declaration today. And they are very adamant the the Republicans going to see their Republican congressmen are very adamant that the Republican congressmen better support the president. And the Republican congressmen continue to be deeply skeptical of the emergency declaration. And they think that they're setting themselves up for a terrible precedent when next there is a Democratic president. Again, If this president can declare an emergency at the border when the situation is improving, why can't the next Democratic president declare an emergency on climate change? And that Democratic president is going to have something that this president doesn't have. They're going to have the holdovers from the Bush administration on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so not partisan Democratic operatives, but the people that George Bush had in place, they've already issued a report declaring climate change a national emergency. That will impact national security. So if this president can declare an emergency at the border with an improving situation, then the next president can declare a climate change emergency in the exact same way. President Trump is handing them that precedent. Now, you can say they're going to do it anyway, but Barack Obama never did it. Barack Obama wanted to and was talked out of doing what Donald Trump is doing now. So you shouldn't say, I'm going to do something, because they might hypothetically, in theory, do something later. It's a terrible precedent. But again, you guys want them to do it, and so what you're going to probably see is most Republicans supporting the president and coming out against the resolution to stop this on Capitol Hill today. Uh, More on that, and Bernie Sanders had a town hall with CNN. It was bizarre. Bernie Sanders still refusing to denounce the... Increasingly, terroristic leader of Venezuela. Some amazing audio we've got for you when we come back right here on Atlanta's Evening News. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, when Jonathan last from then the Weekly Standard, now he's over at the Bulwark, good friend of mine. Uh, recommended Calm for my kids. I thought he was nuts. It just sounds like a bunch of hooey. Um, but my kids were listening to sound machines at night and thought, you know what? Let's try this. Uh, so I got a call map, and now I'm a premium member for Calm. Uh, it is in my house every night with my kids. In fact, we have one of those internet things that blocks out the internet after 10 p.m. on their devices and had to figure out how to open a gateway just for Calm because the kids love it so much. So what is Calm? Well, it's the number one app to help you reduce anxiety and stress and to help you sleep better. And that's why my kids use it. Over 40 million people around the world have downloaded Calm. I am one of them. My kids both use Calm. If you head to Calm.com Eric, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription. It includes guided meditations on issues like anxiety stress and focus it includes brand new meditations every day there are sleep stories there are bedtime stories for adults designed to help you relax you can head off to the magical lavender fields of southern france with Stephen fry or explore the moodlit jungles of africa with leona lewis they even have soothing music and more one of my kids likes to listen to the stories the other one likes to listen to music right now listeners to my show get 25 percent Off a Calm Premium subscription at calm.com slash eric. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash E-R-I-C-K. You get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at calm.com slash ericsson. I'm sorry, calm.com slash eric. Don't use ericsson, just use eric. Get calm and stop stressing at calm.com slash eric today. Now, let's see. Do I have people on the phone? So we, we have a, a different setup here in Washington, where I am. Uh, wandering the halls of Congress today, meetings tomorrow and Thursday. By the way, David Clark had a press conference today, state representative supporting the resolution House Speaker Ralston. Um, I hear that the victims of Ralston's actions may be holding a press conference. That may be able to move the needle. Right now, the situation is these um The the state representatives who have signed on are in the minority. There are only about 10 of them, including one woman took her name off the resolution and they're trying to build momentum in the House. Uh, The speaker off. A punting to a bipartisan commission to tell the state house they uh, what is right and what is wrong has helped him to a degree but you really do need to keep the pressure on and you do need to follow up again and again and again with your state house representative if you have not talked to your representative call him back uh, again text speaker to three four five three four five all i can do is make available for you the means by which you can reach out to your member of the state house i can't make you call i can't generate an email for you i can't generate a tweet for you I made it possible for you to do all of that very, very easy, but you got to be the one to do it. It's got to be up to you to do, folks. you got to take action if you care about this issue, if you care about the victims, if you want to see justice done. It is up to you. Bernie Sanders has had a a CNN town hall summit. By the way, there is a lot of people complaining about CNN doing these town halls. I actually think it's good. I think the exposure is good. CNN is doing a very good job of making sure it's not a completely friendly crowd. So they're getting some tough questions. And it's very interesting to see that one of the toughest questions for Bernie Sanders is whether or not the leader of Venezuela is a bad guy. He seemed to be stumped by the question. Now, the vice president has also spoken on the situation in Venezuela. It continues to heat up. I'm trying to, to do an ambush interview with Marco Rubio, if nothing else, to try to let let him get on camera and talk about it for a few minutes. Not sure I'm going to be able to have time with him. He's fired up about this issue. When we come back to the Bernie Sanders audio is amazing. We'll play it for you. back it's eric erickson here the phone number 404 872 750 wsb talk we need to discuss venezuela uh for a few moments we need to uh, pay attention to it because the situation continues to spiral out of control there uh first of all mike pence spoke about maduro the president of venezuela or earlier today let's play clip six
0: What brings us together today is the recognition by all the nations gathered here that Nicolas Maduro is a usurper with no legitimate claim to power. And Nicolas Maduro must go.
1: Now, we're not Threatening to send the military to Venezuela. Venezuela would actually be a rather difficult country to invade. It's not going to happen. So no one needs to worry about that. But we're continuing to build political pressure. Brazil has joined with us and most South American and Central American countries now have uh, supported us in this. We sent aid relief to Venezuela. We parked it all on a bridge. Between Venezuela and Colombia, the Maduro regime uh, shot and killed several people trying to approach the aid, uh, injured others, and then blew up, uh, set fire to the aid package. Uh, The people are starving in Venezuela, but you got Bernie Sanders who refuses to believe it. I never understand the people who so hate the United States That they can look at the facts of the world, look at the facts of what's going on around them, and they still deny that there's a problem. But Bernie Sanders is one of those people. This is a man who honeymooned in the Soviet Union and defended long lines to get groceries and basic necessities in in the Soviet Union, arguing that in this country, because of capitalism, people just starve. The man, listen, say what you want to believe, but he is an ardent ideologue. He really believes this stuff. He would like to impose it on this country. He's a dangerous, dangerous man in that regard. Uh, But he was asked at the CNN town hall session uh, what he actually thinks about the Maduro situation. Let's play clip four.
0: Why have you, Senator, why have you stopped short of calling Maduro of Venezuela a dictator? Well, he I, I think it's it's fair to say that the last election was undemocratic. Uh, But there are still democratic operations taking place in that country. The point is, what I am calling for right now is uh, internationally supervised free elections.
1: Internationally supervised free elections. That's what he wants. Notice he didn't answer Wolf Blitzer's question, though. Why won't he call Maduro a dictator? Is it not amazing that there are people who so profoundly hate this system, our way of life, our government, including a member of the United States Senate that he can't bring himself to call Maduro a dictator? Sanders would realign the United States with the axis of evil. Now, he he didn't just stop there, though, at the CNN Town Hall. Uh, Sanders, of course, went full commie last night uh, in his defense of how he wants to pay for his massive, massive explosion of federal government. Let's play clip five.
0: But at a time when the people on top have so much, while the middle class shrinks and we have so many people living in poverty, if your question is, am I going to demand that the wealthy and large corporations start paying their fair share of taxes? Damn right, I will. All right. And let me give you, you know, people say, where are you going to get the money? Where are you going to get the money? Amazon, owned by the wealthiest guy in the world, made five billion dollars last year in profits. Anyone here know how much they paid in taxes? That's right. That's where we're going to begin getting the money.
1: So why did Amazon not pay taxes last year if Amazon made that much in profit? Well, where does Amazon put its money? Amazon reinvests its money in technology. It reinvests its money in building its website, reinvests its money in hiring people, reinvests its money in buildings. It gets offset. See, this is one of the things that Bernie Sanders does want to talk about is Amazon for years did not make profit as they were building their infrastructure. And so they get to depreciate uh, those values over time, roll them out. And so they're still... They're still not paying taxes because they went for so long employing people without making money. So our tax code says if a business over time is on the path to profitability but has expended a lot of money to get there, we're going to allow them to offset uh, their taxation now for when they weren't making any money. And you know what? We get big businesses in this country. and People want to do business in this country because of that. But this whole notion of fair share, do you really want the government to? because the government ultimately becomes the mob. Do you really want the mob to tell you what your fair share is? Do you really want to rely on the mob for that? Now, listen, y'all, let's be honest here. People are stupid. you will go through life a better person when you recognize that, in general, people are stupid. And do you really want people who are stupid to determine what your fair share in life is? I think not, I don't think you should, but that's what Bernie Sanders wants and and that was what he would do if he was president. By the way, there's real worry here because there's some new data shaping up. We got to get back into Hispanic voters here in a minute uh, because there's some real data shaping up that's freaking out the Democrats. So there is new data out. I I told you guys last week, and by the way, progressives really, they they didn't like the suggestion. They thought I was crazy that they demanded facts. I said the president needs to try to lure Hispanic voters. If you just reassure Hispanic voters that you're not trying to deport grandma who's been here for 40 years, you would actually see the Hispanic numbers of support for the president go up. And right now, Brian Kemp, for example, got roughly 40% of the Hispanic vote in Georgia. Rick Scott got 50% of the Hispanic vote in, in Florida. You know what the polling shows right now? Hispanic voters support the president at a rate of 45%. And you know that why that's a real problem? It's because that's enough for the president to win re-election. Yeah, you heard me say that. And do you know one of the reasons that Hispanic voters have decided they like this president? His handling of Venezuela. I know! Yes. Turns out that many of the people uh, who are classified as Hispanic voters, they fled Uh, dictators and kleptocracies from Central and South America. And they don't want to go back to those. They don't want this country turning into one. And so they love that President Trump has taken a hard line against Maduro in Venezuela. They love it. Uh, Hispanic voters, non-Cuban Hispanic voters in Florida. The president has majority support of non-Cuban Hispanic voters in Florida. Right now, because of the Venezuela situation, they love that the president is taking a stand on this, and it's got the Democrats really upset. So here comes Bernie Sanders saying, I, not uh, being willing to call the guy a dictator. It's freaking out the Democrats right now. They don't know what to do. They're seeing the president make inroads with Hispanic voters, and they're upset with that. And the polling shows they should be. This left wing tilt of the Democrats, their unwillingness to admit reality, is hurting them. With a base, they just took for granted. But here, here's the moral of the story here. Demography never is and never has been destiny. Events change things. We'll be back. All righty. Let's go back to the phone, shall we? I'm here in Washington. Y'all are in Atlanta. And I'm going to go to Robert in Cumming. Welcome.
0: Uh, Thanks, Eric, for taking the call. i just got a real quick question. Um, Why would any businessman, um, law enforcement officer, Amazon, ever donate a dime to the Democrats?
1: Well, because uh, most people are emotional more than thoughtful. And for a lot of um, liberals who run businesses, They are really emotional about social issues these days, and and that's where the Democrats are, so uh, they'll cut off their nose to spite their face. Remember, uh, the Democrats have for years said people don't vote their economic interests, Uh, and and they're right in in ways they don't understand. They talk about poor people voting Republican when in fact poor people recognize that uh, the free market actually allows them to accelerate into the middle class. Meanwhile, you've got a bunch of billionaire liberals who love social justice and will vote Democrat, even though it means the end of their businesses as we know it. But I do suspect the Democratic tone has become so hostile towards big business and towards people with money that they may lose some of those people. Remember, when the Democrats say they want to increase taxes on billionaires, the way they actually structure their tax plans is it actually increases the money, increases taxes on um, six-figure earners who vote liberal. So it's your rich, progressive lawyers and doctors and businessmen who pay those taxes, not actually the millionaires and billionaires, the way the Democrats have it structured. Jennifer in Flowery Branch, only got about a minute, but wanted to get you in here. Hi, Eric. I was calling. Um, is it true that somebody from a different country can come into America and start up a business and not have to pay taxes? Um, this was just in the the Bernie Sanders comment saying that people should pay more taxes. Um would it not benefit for people that are running a business right well well, so it 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 depends on the tax code so if if you make a profit as, as a businessman whether you're from here or not if you make a profit you pay taxes on that profit but if last year you operated at a loss so you not only didn't make money you didn't even break even you lost money The way the tax code operates for you, for me, and for anyone else is that this year you can apply part of that loss to this year so your profits aren't wiped out by taxes. So you can actually offset by making more money this year because you lost so much money last year. That's the way the tax code balances it out. You take your loss from the year before and apply it to the profit you earned this year so that you're not having to overpay taxes. and Democrats don't seem to understand this concept, but, you know, you actually do want businesses to make a profit so that they can reinvest their money and grow their business and hire more people and then pay more taxes.
0: Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. off. We have a liftoff.
1: Good evening. Welcome. It is the second hour here on Atlanta's Evening News. I'm Eric Erickson, and you're listening to WSB, and we've got some news out right now from NBC confirming a story uh, that U.S. Cyber Command blocked Internet access to the Russian trolls during the 2018 midterms, an operation that should have been approved by the president. Now, here's the thing. And this is why this is so interesting is the media narrative. And again, the media more often than not is interested in narratives, not facts these days. They want to build out overall stories, not just tell you the facts. And and the narrative had been that the president was trying to undermine national security staffers in combating the Russians. We've heard that repeatedly. We've heard the president was blocking stuff. We've heard the president was undermining stuff. Remember, we heard that the president was undermining um, safe elections and the integrity of the 2020 election and scaling back operations and whatnot. Well, it turns out that it was President Trump himself who not only intervened and authorized the U.S. cybersecurity, cyber command within the military to block IP addresses coming from Russia— During the 2018 election so that they could not get into the United States Internet system easily. The president not only ordered them to do that, but he expanded the order, made it more expansive, giving U.S. Cyber Command more latitude in combating the Russians. Again, this is not what we've been told by the media was happening. Now, yes, ironically, it is the media confirming reports today, but for months on end, even in the run-up to the 2018 election, there were scores and scores of stories about the president and uh, his staff undermining the military efforts to combat the Russian troll farm, and it turns out that not only was the president encouraging them to and, and ordering them to, but giving them more expansive orders than anyone knew. He's a really terrible agent for Vladimir Putin, isn't he? Now... This relates to the story I was going to talk about anyway, which is the Georgia election bill upcoming. There is a real divide between uh, Republicans and Democrats in the state house on the election. And what's so ironic to me is that Democrats want to go back to paper ballots. Now, y- you should know that the role is reversed. If you go back to 2000. In 2000, uh, George W. Bush beat Al Gore by 536 votes in Florida, and a lot of people claimed it was because of a poorly designed ballot in Palm Beach County. And uh, ironically, it turns out that if you use the standard Al Gore wanted to count the ballots down there, so they were butterfly ballots. In in Georgia, you fill in a little circle on a scantron machine. That's how you did it. In Florida, you actually pushed out. Uh, you made a hole in the ballot. There were perforations. And you use a little pin, and you pushed out the, the little piece of paper to form a hole that the machine read. And, and the, the hole, the little rectangular piece of paper, was called a chad. And sometimes it, it didn't completely separate from the ballot, and you had what's called a hanging chad. And in some cases, it was one corner perforated. In some cases, two. In some cases, three. In some cases, all of them. And you had to decide: uh, Did that person intend to vote, or what? It was a mess. And so there was a real drive to move to electronic voting machines where people thought you could just push on the screen. Uh, and, And this was even before iPads and iPhones. You would be able to just touch on the screen who you wanted to vote for, and it would be an easier process. And Democrats around the country led the effort in doing that. Well, now they want to go back to paper ballots because it's apparently a lot harder to commit voter fraud on a touch screen than it is on paper ballots. And the Democrats are screaming hysterically that the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. By the way, there is no evidence at all that the Russians were able to get into voting machines. Yes, there are some cybersecurity experts who want to go back to paper machines and they want to go back to paper ballots because the cybersecurity experts are focused on the Internet. And so, of course, if this is on a machine, they see a way to hack it electronically that a way paper can't be hacked. Well, ballots can be stuffed with paper. And cyber experts aren't going to be able to tell you that because that's not in their wheelhouse. But here's the other issue in Georgia. Democrats are touting the cost of the paper ballots. It will actually save local counties money by casting paper ballots because the machines are expensive. That's their argument. It turns out it's not true. Because the cumulative effort of buying paper ballots and printing paper ballots every year and storing the paper ballots adds up. And ultimately, what the study commission found in the state legislature is that if you use paper ballots, it is overall more expensive long-term to use paper ballots than to buy the voting machines. And in fact, the state will be buying the machines. The counties will not be buying the machines. The poor counties will not be spending their money on machines. You would not know that from the Democrats. But more importantly, you wouldn't know it from a lot of the press either. So what the state wants to do is they want to provide... Voting electronic voting machines that will print out a receipt for the voters. Now, this also complicates it more than the voting machines we have right now because the volunteers who are manning the polls on Election Day are going to have to learn how to fill the machines with the paper rolls and all that to be able to keep it going. Uh, When you have machines printing out paper, you have paper jam issues, things like that, over time the machines get old. It becomes very problematic. Frankly, the machines we have right now are, are, I think, better. Uh, And the machines we have right now, they're they're not being hacked, contrary to claims. I think we should just keep the machines we have, buy newer versions of them. But nonetheless, the Republicans want to go with these machines and give you a paper receipt so you can see on paper what the machines would afford. You know, just as there are anti-vaccine people who have these huge conspiracy theories and doctors to back them up claiming that uh, vaccines give you autism, there are people who have experts who say, you can push, the, you can, for example, select Stacey Abrams' name on the machine, but it's really counting it for Brian Kemp. They, they actually have experts who will say these things, just as you can get an expert to say pretty much anything. You can get an expert to say UFOs are real. Just watch the History Channel. They're all over there. Don't call me telling me UFOs are real, people. Please, please don't. Nonetheless, you, you, you get the point I'm making here. Uh, they're gonna, So they're going to move to the electronic voting machines. It's going to cost a lot of money up front. The state is going to cover those costs so local governments don't have to. And the Democrats are going to scream and complain, but, 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 there's a problem for the Democrats. Internally, a number of Democrats are privately conceding something. Older people and people with disabilities have an easier time touching a screen than holding a pen to fill in a bubble. If you have arthritis in your hands, if you are a senior citizen, it is a lot harder to hold a pen and try to fill in a bubble. If you have arthritis in your hand and you're a senior citizen, or you're a senior citizen and you have bad eyesight, it's a lot easier to lift your hand and touch a magnified bubble on a screen where they can adjust the contrast and adjust the size of text for you than it is on a static paper ballot that cannot be changed. If you have disabilities, it is a lot easier to touch a screen. So there are Democrats in the State House of Representatives who are willing to go along with the Republicans on this, and Democratic leaders in the State House and the State senate are upset with their own members for contemplating the needs of senior citizens and disabled people. Why? Because Stacey Abrams told them they got to oppose this, and they're really, really upset some state House and state Senate members might not oppose it because they're actually concerned about constituents who would have an easier time with the machines. Really amazing. We'll be back. I am delighted to welcome Harry's to sponsor this podcast. You know, Harry sponsors my radio show too, and I've been a longtime customer of Harry's. I started with uh, one of their competitors and decided I liked Harry's better. I liked their weighted handle. I liked the quality and construction of their blade. I felt like I was getting a real shave. And frankly, as somebody who tries not to shave every day, just because of razor burn, I liked that I could go a couple of days. Harry's gave me such a close shave and didn't have to worry about it. And you don't have to worry about it either. Harry's replacement cartridges are just two dollars each and they bought a, a factory in germany to turn out their razors they make such good razors they are cheaper than the name brands that you know like the gillette fusion pro shield in fact their razors are, blades are half the price so look right now harry's is giving you a great trial if you go to harrys.com eric Get a $13 value trial set when it comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. You get a weighted ergonomic handle, a five blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade. You get rich lathering shave gel. You get travel blade cover. Listers on my show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com Eric, but make sure you go to harrys.com Eric to redeem your offer. And you know what? Let them know. I sent you help support the show and get yourself a great shave. The phone lines are open here, 404-872-0750, wsb talk I am in Washington, D.C., where Michael Cohen gives his testimony before the House tomorrow. He's met uh, behind closed doors today uh, with the Senate. We'll also meet behind closed doors with the House. We'll also have some public testimony. We will be covering that here tomorrow on WSB. Be sure to tune in for the Cohen um testimony. He's promising it's going to be explosive. Um one of the di- Republican congressmen from Florida, oh, what's his name? From the Jacksonville area. Matt, what's his name? He is causing gats. He's causing some controversy today, and it should not be legal. He tweeted out, hey Michael Cohen. Do your wife and father-in-law know about your girlfriends? Maybe tonight would be a good time for that chat. I wonder if she'll remain faithful when you're in prison. She's about to learn a lot. Wow. Y'all, I got to tell you, can, would you like it if a Democrat, would you like it if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did that to a Republican? Would you like that if a Democrat did that to a Republican? This is witness intimidation. Matt Gatz is the Republican congressman for the 1st Congressional District, and I am really profoundly appalled that a Republican would engage in witness intimidation prior to a witness testifying before Congress. Uh, And if you're not, uh, this is on you, because these little things, they begin to open the door for Democrats to do it as well and escalate the situation and do witness intimidation. They should not be doing that. And again, I I hear from listeners all the time who say, well, I think the Democrats are going to do that. But they haven't. And now you cede the moral high ground. And I realize you think, oh, the media won't take up. Listen, if you're planning your life not around what's right and what's wrong, but whether you think the other side is going to get away with something, you're going to live a very miserable life. And in politics, we're going to see more and more misery heaped upon us because our politicians in Washington are not doing something based on whether they think it's right or wrong, but based on whether they think the other side is going to do it, so they want to do it first. That's no way to govern a country. It's no way to lead a world. It's no way to live a life. And yet, that's what we're seeing happen. But Cohen is going to testify tomorrow while the president is is having the, the Vietnamese summit with the North Koreans. I, I'm still a little bit appalled by the president giving the North Koreans the PR opportunity at home while they're uh, executing Christians and locking up dissent. But nonetheless, it's where we are with the North Korean summit happening. Michael Cohen, busy, busy newsday. When we come back, though, we got to switch gears to the controversy in the Senate Judiciary Committee over Naomi Rao's nomination for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. going to happen tomorrow in the michael cohen hearing is going to be exciting to watch we'll be covering it here on wsb can't wait to be back tomorrow it's kind of i did not plan on being up here in washington during the cohen hearings i i'm kind of i'm kind of excited i'm here while it's happening the phone number here 404-872-0750-1800 wsb talk let's talk about naomi Rao. uh so um Josh Hawley, who is the freshman senator from Missouri, beat Claire McCaskill in November. He is uh, thus far opposed to Naomi Rao's nomination, says that she's bad on substantive due process. Uh, Substantive due process, one of those liberal ideas is taking a very expansive view of the Constitution. And he thinks that she's bad on Roe v. Wade. Now, here's... We need to step back. And and this is not a criticism of Howell. Frankly, he's doing his job. I don't think conservatives need to be beating him up. Um, They're beating him up because he's not going along with the herd. And I appreciate congressmen and senators not going along with the herd. But I do disagree with him on this. And we need to go back in history. The reason that the president of the United States has been able to move so many judges through, and they've all thus far shown themselves to be good judges is because of what happened with David Souter, and before him, Anthony Kennedy, and after Souter, John Roberts. Uh, Souter, the President of the United States, George H.W. Bush, had been assured was good on life issues. He turned out not to be. But back in the day, you had a, a litmus test for judges, the litmus test essentially boiled down to is this guy good on life? And if good on life move forward and it didn't matter what their underlying rationale was it didn't under, it didn't matter what their legal philosophy was it didn't matter what their thinking was. As long as they were good on life, conservatives would be happy. And well, over time, Democrats also figured out that was the way to obstruct nominees, that that if this person was coming forward, the litmus test had been, are you good on life? Never mind anything else. And it made it easy to undermine uh, the nominee. They could undermine the nominee because they could then explore the person's judicial philosophy and cause conservatives to not like the judge. And they could undermine the liberal Republicans in the Senate by saying, this, this guy's only there because they're pro-life. You're not pro-life oppose them, and it became harder and harder to get good conservative judges passed and in addition uh we were putting people on the courts john roberts being about among the last of these who uh we were we were trying to avoid litmus tests by roberts and yet we needed the litmus test and his wife worked for a pro-life group so he was probably pro-life so let's put him on the bench and look what we got He's still better than, than most people give him credit for, but he continues now uh, to, to want to split the baby in ways he shouldn't. Nonetheless, over time what happened, particularly with Leonard Leo, the Federalist Society, Judicial Confirmation at Work, and some of these outside groups. Is they realized we needed to vet a judge's entire judicial philosophy we needed to go back into their writings from when they were in law school we needed to go back and see what cases they were arguing in courts and who their clients were and what we needed to find were judges who had routinely or nominees who had routinely in private practice and in their public life taken the idea that we needed to go with the strict construction of the american constitution's text and what did the founders intend originally Because if you went with the original intentions of the founders and the drafters of the Constitution and you went with the text of the Constitution... There is no way you could twist it into supporting Roe v. Wade, but we never had to ask you the question and we never had to provide a litmus test. We could look at the whole host of your judicial philosophy. And the bonus of this was that we would get judges who were good on all the other issues. We wouldn't get somebody who loved babies but hated big business. We wouldn't get someone who was opposed to Roe v. Wade but in favor of massive government regulatory controls. And it's worked. Alito and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and a host of circuit court judges and a host of district court judges around the country. Their entire judicial philosophy revolves around the limits and constraints of the original Constitution. It works. And so in comes Naomi Rao. So Naomi Rao became a controversial nominee. Because she had written uh, on the coll- in a college newspaper, and she had written things that were deemed to be uh, anti-transgender, uh, anti-gay, homophobic comments, um, things like that. It, it, they were they were nonsensical pieces from college. They were pieces that got her in trouble with the left. But there were a number of Republican members of the Senate. Uh, Susan Collins being one, Rob Portman being another. Lisa Murkowski being another, who were deeply skeptical of her because of her social positions. Well, in comes Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, who saw some of Naomi Rowell's um, statements, and um, he raised questions about whether she might be too committed to Roe v. Wade. In particular, one of the issues was that she had in the past suggested that Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. And you know what? Guess what? It is the law of the land. We have a situation now where Federalist Society members, conservative judges understand that there are ways they have to talk about cases. That has gotten Naomi Rao in trouble with Josh Hawley, but her overall record suggests someone who is fundamentally Committed to originalism and textualism. She has, in her capacity working for the Trump administration, uh, zealously deregulated, cut regulations, cut red tape and bureaucracy. And in her personal life, she is known to be pro life. She is known among people who knew her at Notre Dame to be very definitively pro life. And I'm told that one of the people that Josh Halley has said told him that Naomi Rao once called herself pro-choice, said he wasn't sure about that, and that others who know her said she's very much pro-life. And my fear is that what Josh Hawley wants to do is return us to litmus test days where you got to come out for this issue, and if not, you're in trouble. And we shouldn't do that. And the reason we shouldn't do that is because while we got some very good judges using the Roe v. Wade litmus test back in the day, we got a lot of awful judges. And we've been more consistent as conservatives through presidential picks. We've been more consistently getting solid picks by looking at the whole of someone's judicial philosophy and the whole of their legal career. And if we expect these judges to come out, I mean, if we expect Naima Rao to come out and say, I think Roe v. Wade should be overturned tomorrow, even though as a federal appellate court judge, I would have no power to do that. She would lose the votes for confirmation. She would lose other Republicans. And that's deeply problematic. Uh, I think that I hope that Josh Hawley will reconsider this and look at Rao's overall record as a lawyer in private practice, uh, her writings, her statements, and even the context of some of the statements Hawley's objected to, which were actually good for conservatives. We need to not go back to the litmus test days, and I hope he'll consider that. But that's the big, big judicial story in Washington this week, is we got a conservative holding up a conservative nominee over the issue of Roe v. Wade. And frankly, I think she's very pro-life, and Howley needs to back down on this. I hope he will. We'll be back. Okay, can I give you all my laugh, uh, your laugh at my expense? So I love Chef's Table on Netflix. It is my one of my favorite shows on Netflix. Cooking documentary, interviewing, profiling chefs. Really, really good. And their sixth season just came out. Um, Sean Brock from Husk over in Charleston is one of them. They've got some lady in Savannah who owns a restaurant in Savannah I now have to go eat at. Uh, she is um, interviewed. And Asma Khan who is an immigrant to London who opened the most popular Indian restaurant in London. She's got a new cookbook out as well, Asma's Indian Kitchen. So I got on Amazon last night, decided I'm going to order this cookbook. It's a great episode, by the way. You really should watch it. Uh, Chef's Table on Amazon. Well, it turns out that, oh, you put in her name and there's all sorts of adult romance novels taking her name. It's rather embarrassing.